this morning I want, to, I want to ask, or to begin rather, with a question. You don't have to say it out loud. And my question is, how would you describe your prayer life? Think about it with a, with a moment. How would you describe your prayer life? Last year, CNN ran this headline on their website. Almost a year ago today, they ran this headline. Dead woman found to be breathing at Detroit funeral home. According to the report, the Southfield Fire Department, they responded to a 911 call about an unconscious woman. And when they arrived at the home, they found an unresponsive, non-breathing young lady. Life-saving procedures and aid were immediately initiated in an effort to save the young woman's life. However, about after an hour of doing all this, no signs of life were found. Yet when she was taken to the funeral home, and as they unzipped the body bag to begin to embalm her, her eyes opened up, and she started breathing. Can you imagine? All the people in that room were absolutely shocked. You see, you know what caused all this confusion? It was simply this. This is what caused all this confusion. Although the woman was not dead, she didn't show any signs of life. Although she was not dead, she failed to show any signs of life. And I wonder, I wonder if the same is true with our prayer lives. What I mean is, I wonder if they are a lot, if we would confess that they are a lot like that woman. They're not dead, but our prayer lives are failing to show any signs of life. In fact, can I ask, is that true of you? Let, let me go back to the question we started with. How would you describe your prayer life? Is it lacking vibrancy? Has it become dull, perhaps dull to the point that it appears dead? For those of us who have been saved through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, for those who belong to God through faith in Christ, we have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, prayer is not optional. It's not some add-on to the Christian life. No, prayer is an essential component. I mean, Jesus taught as much, did he not, in Matthew chapter 6? Indeed, the Bible teaches that prayer is a discipline. We are called not only to practice. We're not just called to practice prayer as followers of Christ. It's something the Bible says repeatedly we are to be devoted to. You could almost think it's something we're to be experts in. 
So, so here's the question I want us to consider this morning, and that is how? How are we to go about prayer? What does that look like? To put it another way, what is true prayer? And how would that show itself in our everyday lives? Well, this is where I think our text this morning can really, really help us. Please turn within your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 7. As you're turning there, let me give you the context. For months now, we've been working our way through the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel. And what you need to know, and we've mentioned this numerous occasions the last couple of weeks, what you need to know is that 2 Samuel chapter 7 is not only the most important Bible in the books of Samuel, but it's also one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible. We could say that it's one of the tallest mountain peaks in the biblical landscape because it helps us see how the entire Bible fits together and points towards the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible is a book that is not primarily about you. No, the Bible is a book that is primarily about the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done. Amen? And that's exactly what we learned last week. We've been working our way through this chapter. And last week we saw in this middle section uh, this very important truth, and that is this, and that is all of God's saving promises come through David's son. All of God's saving promises come through David's son, who ultimately, and these promises are fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. You can think of it kind of like a highway. Since Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis 3, God has had a plan to redeem and to save sinful humanity. And he's worked those out through the covenants in Scripture. Well, all these saving promises, they merge into this one lane that centers on David's son. God promises David that he will have an eternal home, an eternal house, a dynasty, a kingdom that will be forever. And as we saw last week, as we worked through this chapter, we hear echoes of the previous promises God has made. So in the center section of 2 Samuel 7, we learn this very important truth. All of God's saving promises come through, D, come through David's son, which is fulfilled in his greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, as you can imagine, David begins, we see him starting in this chapter, saying to the Lord, Lord, I want to build you a house. God says, no, I'm going to build you a house, David, a dynasty that will last for forever. And on the heels of hearing this incredible promise of what the Lord's going to do, David is quite overwhelmed. You can think of it like this. David just received divine revelation from God through the prophet Nathan. He just received divine revelation from God. So you know what David does next in response to receiving this divine revelation? He prays. God's revelation, God revealing his plans, his will to David that moves David to pray. And faith, so it should be with us today. Now, please hear me. You do understand, all of us, you do understand that we are far more privileged than David, right? For in Scripture, we have the complete revelation of God's will. David did not. 
how much more should we be driven to prayer upon reading, meditating, and studying God's complete revelation and plan for salvation in Scripture? And that's what I want us to give our attention to, this topic of prayer. So turn with me, if you haven't, to 2 Samuel 7. That's page 260 in that paperback Bible. In this final section of this chapter, we see one of the greatest prayers, one of the great prayers of the Bible. And indeed, I'm going to argue here we learn what necessitates true prayer. So following your copy of God's Word, as I read beginning in verse 18 of chapter 7. So, so the prophet Nathan has just spoken this revelation to David, this incredible promise of what God's going to do through David's line to bring all his saving promises to pass. You're going to have a throne. It's going to be established forever. And now we read this in verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. Now let me ask you, where do you think he sat? Before what? The Ark of the Covenant. As we've been seeing since, since chapter 6, the Ark of the Covenant represents the very presence of God amongst his people. So God hearing, or David hearing this, he goes and he sits before the Ark of the Lord, and then he begins to pray. And he says to God this. He said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God, for you have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this instruction is for mankind, O Lord God. Again, David understands the promise that he has just received. It's not just for him, it's not just for Israel, but this is for the entire world, for all of mankind. Verse 20, and what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. And now in light of this promise, therefore you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that, you, that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel? The one nation on earth whom God, whom God sent to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people, whom you have redeemed for yourself from Egypt a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O oh Lord, became their God. Now, this is where we're going to focus in this morning. This is really the center of the prayer. Notice what David does here. And now, O oh Lord God, in light of all the promises that God has made, notice what David says. And now, O oh Lord God, Confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant saying, I will build you a house 
Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God and your words are true. And you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. Amen and amen. This is God's word. Last week, I shared with you a promise that my father made to me and my brother Dave when we were seven and eight years old. He promised to get us something. Do you remember what it was? What was it? A go-kart. Good memory. Very good. And not just one of those little batter-operated jobs, one of those real gas-powered go-karts. And Dave and I were so thrilled. And do you remember what my brother Dave and I did every day after he made that promise? We reminded our dad each and every day of the extraordinary promise he made to get us a go-kart. And sadly, as I mentioned, we are still reminding him, right, (laughs) of that promise. In other words, since the moment my dad uttered those words to us and he made that promise, we kept saying to our dad, Dad, do as you have spoken. We were saying to him, Dad, bring your promise to pass. Well, Faith, we see King David doing the exact same thing in the passage I just read, don't we? And faith, this passage illustrates what the rest of the Bible teaches concerning prayer, and that is this foundational truth, and that is plead God's promises in prayer. What is the nature of true prayer? What is the, one of the chief characteristics of biblical prayer? It's this. Plead God's promises in prayer. That is precisely what we see David doing. Christian, you want your prayer life to have zeal and passion? You want your prayer life to have vibrancy? Then follow David's example and plead God's promises. This, I want to argue, is true prayer. English Puritan William Gurnall captured it best. He said this, He said, prayer is nothing but the promise reversed or God's word turned inside out and formed back into an argument and retorted back again upon God by faith. As several commentators have pointed out, all of David's petitions in this prayer are grounded in in God's promise to him. Notice there, look at that phrase at the end of verse 25. It captures the heart of David's prayer. Like me and my brother with my dad, King David is asking the Lord to do all that he has spoken, all that he has promised. And and David's prayer is not an anomaly faith. We see this pattern repeated throughout the pages of Scripture. Think of Exodus 32. When Moses pleads for mercy for Israel after the golden calf incident by asking God, God, remember, 
Remember your promise to Abraham. Or consider how Nehemiah prays for struggling Jerusalem by asking God, God, remember your promise to Moses. He does this in Nehemiah chapter 1. Or think about in the book of Daniel, about when Daniel asks God to deliver the Jews after 70 years in exile, after reading Jeremiah's promise that God would deliver the Jews after 70 years of exile in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel's saying, God, do what you have promised. Faith, true prayer consists of pleading God's promises. Indeed, notice what else we see here. Praying God's promise also gives us, hear me, confidence in prayer. Don't miss this. Look again at what David says in verse 27. Have your eyes fall there. Notice what he says. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servants, saying, I will build you a house. He's saying, this is the promise you have given me. Now, notice how David interprets this. He says, therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Where do we get courage and confidence to go before the sovereign king of the universe? Where do we get it? We get it from God's promises. Because think about it. What are we doing in prayer? In prayer, and, and I, I want to just qualify, I'm speaking about Christians here. Only those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ have access to God through, through Christ, right? What are we doing in prayer? We are going before the sovereign God and creator of the entire universe. Now consider this. What can poor, feeble sinners presume to ask of such an awesome creator? How dare we ask anything? So how can we ask something to the sovereign God of all the universe? You know what the answer is? From what he has promised us and promised to give us. Here again, we're helped by another Puritan, John Trapp. In his commentary on this passage, he writes this. I love it. He says, promises must be prayed over. God loves to be burdened with and to be urgently pressed with requests in his own words. He loves to even be sued upon his own blood. On, I'm sorry, bond. For prayer is putting God's promises into suit. And it is no arrogancy nor presumption to burden God, as it were, with his own promises. And just by way of application, can I ask, how prevalent are God's promises in your prayers? Indeed, are you even familiar with the precious and magnificent promises God has given to his own? Friend, Faith Community Church, plead God's promises in prayer. So, when you are praying for that Christian friend who is struggling in his or her faith, plead the promise of Philippians 1.6. Lord, complete the good work you've promised to complete in this Christian's life. Bring them to maturity. When you're exhausted and you have nothing left in the tank, 
plead Hebrews 4.16, Lord, grant me the grace you've promised to give those in their time of need. Lord, I am in need now, and you've promised to give me your grace. I'm pleading with you, provide it. Indeed, when you need strength in the midst of a fearful situation, Plead the promise of Isaiah 41.10. O Lord, strengthen and help me as you promised to do. Uphold me by your righteous hand as you promised to do. But when you find yourself amidst a painful trial, as we all will in this life, plead Romans 8.28. Lord, use this trial for my good and your glory as you've promised to. And I would also add, when you pray for our church, plead Matthew 16, 18, Lord, you promised to build your church. God, do as you have spoken. Prayer pleads the promises of God. Now, to be sure we must be certain that any promise is a promise that rightly applies to us, right? And you know what? Certainly God's promise to David does. Also, you might ask, please hear me, not in that God is going to make your name great, <laughs> but that God is going to make the son of David great. You see, what David is asking God to do in the text we just read is the same thing we ask God to do when we pray the Lord's Prayer, that God's name be hallowed throughout the earth. It's the same thing we ask when we pray for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth. You see, the final king of David's dynasty has come in the Lord Jesus Christ, yet his kingship must be fully, publicly, and universally displayed. This is why the Lord Jesus taught us to pray what? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be what? Your kingdom, your will on earth as it is in heaven. You know what we're doing when we're praying the Lord's Prayer? We're pleading God's promises. Plead God's promises in prayer. So what I want to do in the next couple of minutes is point out how David models several important practices of true prayer. I think this text provides excellent counsel to add passion, boldness, and vibrancy to our prayer lives. And there are four practices I believe this text highlights. And the first is this. When you pray, adopt a humble spirit. Look again at verse 18. Okay, so David's just been given this revelation that from his house there will become an eternal kingdom. We, in God's word, we have the full revelation and we see how that's fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice how David responds to this revelation. What's his posture? Verse 18, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house? that you have brought me thus far. You have brought me thus far. 
if, if you were to go out from here and to get on and turn right onto Highway 42 and go a little bit, you would run into the Gene Snyder Interstate, Interstate 265, right? If you were to continue on a little bit further on Highway 42, what other interstate would you come upon? 265, which is called what? The Watterson, right? Do you happen to know how many miles it is from where I'm standing right now to the Watterson? Six. Exactly six miles. Way to go, Jeff Leatherman. Way to go. And he didn't even Google it. Way to go. Notice what David prays. He says, who am I that you have brought me to this point? When God initially called David, he was a shepherd boy in Bethlehem. Is he still a shepherd boy in Bethlehem? No, now he is a king in Jerusalem. Geographically, do you know how far it is from Bethlehem to Jerusalem? Take a wild guess. Six miles. Only six miles. Yet chronologically, that journey, it spanned 21 chapters and over 10 years of danger, treachery, folly, despair, and slander. As we've talked about, David's journey to become the king of Israel was not an easy one. So notice what David is doing here in this prayer. You know what he's doing? He's recalling God's previous grace in his life. You have brought me this far. Indeed, in light of this, notice how David begins his prayer. He says, who am I? This is a confession, a remembrance that he had not earned royal dignity, but that it was a free gift of God. David here has a posture of humility before the Lord. And faith, I want to argue, this is a posture we must have too. And I was challenged by this this week. Here are some questions that I had. When you go before the Lord in prayer, what is your attitude? Do you come to the Lord in prayer with demands or with a spirit of humility? Do you come believing you are entitled to have God do what you ask? Or do you reflect the spirit we see here in David? John Calvin provides some excellent counsel how we can adopt a humble spirit in prayer. Commenting on this, this portion of Scripture, Calvin writes this. He says, Here then is the rule to which we must hold. In order to praise God properly and to appreciate the favors which He gives us, let us begin to examine what we would be if He had left us in our first state. This is what David is getting at when he says, you have brought me up into this point. He's recalling his previous state. Now think about how frequently the New Testament authors encourage us to do the same. Think of Paul in Titus 3.3 when he reminds us of who we once were outside of Christ, how we were foolish, disobedient, led astray, hating one another's and hated by others. Think of how he does it also in Colossians 3 and Ephesians 2, reminding us of where we once came. Faith, the next time you go to God in prayer, 
I would encourage you, I would implore you, take a moment to reflect on where you once were outside of Christ. Think of how far God has taken you. Not only transferring you from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son, but then in His kindness, how He's grown you. Consider for a moment your lowly state before the sovereign God of the universe. Indeed, before you even make a request to God, say to God like David, Lord, who am I? Adopt a posture of humility. But then second, when you pray, admire God's greatness. Look again at verse 22. In light of these, these great promises, David says, Therefore you are great, O Lord God. Why? For there is none like you. There is no God besides you according to all that we have heard with our ears. Uh, do you all happen to know what's about to take place in February of 2022? The Super Bowl will be, yes, something else. The Winter Olympics. Yeah, I, it caught me by surprise too. So you probably don't know this. you know where it's going to be held? Alabama. Alabama. <laughs> Close. <laughs> Beijing. <laughs> well, speaking of the Olympics... Comedian Bill Murray once said this, and it's so great. He said this. He said, every Olympic event should include one average person competing for reference. <laughs> and you know what? I think he's absolutely right. And you know why? Because listen, you know why? Because that's really the only way we're truly going to know how incredible these athletes are, right? Notice, David is admiring God's greatness, isn't he? And you know what? In our prayers, so should we. But here's the question, how? How do we admire God's greatness? Well, I want you to notice David gives us a clue, doesn't he? For notice what David said. He writes, for there is none like you. You know what David is doing? He's comparing God, the one true living God, to all the false gods and idols of this world. You know what he's doing? He's using these false gods and idols as a reference much like an average person in an Olympic event. And David is not the only one who does this, is he? In fact, <laughs> the good news is the Bible does this for us, does it not? For what does the psalmist write in Psalm 115? Remember, I'll put it up here on the screen. Listen carefully to these words. The psalmist writes, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. 
you know what makes our God great? He does all that He pleases. He speaks to us through His Word. He sees all things, even the intentions and motives of our hearts. He hears all things, even our cries and our concerns. And what makes our God particularly great is that in the Lord Jesus Christ, God came to earth. He took on human flesh and he walked among us. Indeed, Jesus walked with a cross on his back so he could have his hands and his feet crucified so our sins could be forgiven. Amen? Our God is great because there's no thing or person that can do that. Can I encourage you, friend, to please take time to admire God's greatness in your prayers? That is to remind yourself of His greatness, His glory, His majesty, how He can do all these things that no other God can. In fact, you want your anxious heart to experience peace? Dwell on God's greatness. Third, I just want to direct your attention to how David directs us to appreciate God's care for his own. So when you pray, adopt a humble spirit, admire God's greatness, and I think also David models for us to appreciate God's care for his own. Because notice what he says there in verses 23 through 25. So he just got exclaiming how great God is. Now notice what he says about his people. He says, and who is like your people Israel? the one nation on earth whom God wants to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for all yourself from Egypt, a, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. In verse 25, like we said, this is the, the key to the whole prayer. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. Appreciate God's care for his own. Now, Isaac Watts is known as the father of English hymnody. He wrote over 700 hymns, many of which are still sung in churches today. Watts lived during the 18th century and had known his share, quite a many, share of griefs and losses. Growing up, Isaac's father was often absent. Not because he was a poor father, but because Isaac's dad was persecuted in prison for his Christian faith. In fact, as an infant, Isaac was often nursed by his mother while she talked to her husband through the bars of his prison cell. He had a dad that was not around. When Isaac was in his 20s, he struck up a wonderful friendship with a beautiful young woman. They connected on so many levels. They were dear, dear friends, and he was deeply in love with her so much so that he asked her to marry him. But you know what she said? Here's her exact words, quote, Mr. Watts, I only wished 
that I admire the casket as much as I admire the jewel. In other words, what she was saying is, I'm not going to marry you because you're ugly. I admire the jewel inside you, but not the casket that contains it. Can you imagine? He also had severe health problems that forced him to retire from being a pastor. He lived his final years in poor health, unmarried. He died a bachelor. When he was 33 years old, he wrote the hymn, When I Can Read My Title Clear. In the first verse, Watts writes this. He says, When I can read my title clear to mansions in the skies, I'll bid farewell to every fear and wipe my weeping eyes. Now, you know what a title is, don't you? A title is a legal document proving ownership. Think of the title to your car or the title to your home. To read your title clear is to understand what is truly yours. It is to fully understand what you possess. Namely, Christian, that in Christ you possess the eternal blessing and care of God. And that is precisely what we see David doing in the verses I just read. Notice what David says here. He's recounting God's abundant care and how God has established a people for himself forever. David is reading his title clear. Again, John Calvin proves to be very helpful here, commenting on how God established a people for himself forever and to care for those people. Calvin writes this. He says, This shows that God did not suddenly cease his care when he redeemed his people from Egypt, but he brought them to himself in order to guard them. This is important to note. For what good would it have done if God had set his people free all at once and then left them? He goes on. Let us learn to use our minds to remember well what it tells us here for our instruction. That is, when it pleases God to call us to know Him. He doesn't mean to deceive us. As if He were saying, here I am, and then immediately drawing away from us. Rather, He intends to persevere in His goodness and listen to this, and make us feel the fruit of his mercy. Amen. How good is God to his people? He just doesn't redeem us and checks out. He's there to be with us forever in constant care. Friend, have you read your title clear? Do you fully understand how God is faithful to love and care for you? Please hear me, God's care for his own, his eternal promises have been given to calm our anxious hearts. For what is it that we often fear the most? Is it not the loss of some kind? What does God's word repeatedly remind us? Does it not remind us that this world is not all there is? But Christian, please hear me, 
we have been promised a new heaven, a new earth with new resurrected bodies for all eternity. Amen? Whatever loss we might face in this life, it will pale in comparison to the eternal weight of glory that awaits all who belong to God through Christ. Why? Because God has established his people forever. That means we are part of his eternal kingdom. May we never lose sight of this. That as residents of his kingdom, he is committed to care for us. And then lastly, I just want to draw your attention that when you pray, that you align your concerns with God's. I'm just going to focus in at verse 26. Notice, notice David's desire here in verse 26 after calling God to do all that he has spoken. God, do what you've promised to do. What's the first thing on David's mind? Verse 26, in your name will be magnified forever. Why does David want God to do as he has spoken? So that God's name will be magnified. And as we've seen, as we've been working our way through 1 and 2 Samuel, we see this a lot in David. David's concern, his chief concern is the fame and glory of God, not himself. He wants God's name to be great. And there's a valuable lesson here, is there not? True prayer ought to conform our will and desires to God's. What I mean is our chief concern when presenting our request to the Lord, is that God would be honored and glorified more than that we would get what we want. Not that we don't bring requests, we don't bring petitions, we do. But may our desires align with God's desire, and that's to make much of His name. Friend, is your primary concern in prayer, indeed in all of life, to glorify your Savior or to get what you really, really, really want? What is the ruling desire in your life? Faith, plead God's promises in prayer. And you know why we can do so with such confidence? Because unlike David, we can look back and see how God has fulfilled all his saving promises in God's one Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? I mean, you know, what, you know what David is really praying here? In essence, David is praying, God, your will be done. He wants to see God's saving promises come to pass. God, your will be done. Now consider what we read in Matthew 26 with David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Garden of Gethsemane, what does Jesus pray? Jesus prays, Father, What? Your will be done. And you know what? Praise the Lord that Jesus prayed that. You know why? Because it was the Father's will for Jesus to go to the cross and die as a substitute for all who would put their trust in him. Then three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, defeating sin and death, and now he sits at the right hand of God the Father. And Christian, you know what Jesus is doing for you right now? As Romans 8 and Hebrews 7 makes clear, you know what Jesus is doing for you right now, Christian? He's praying for you. 
He's interceding on your behalf. Jesus is pleading the promises of God for you. How comforting is that? In fact, you know what? That's the kind of truth that can resurrect a prayer life that has no signs of life. The truth that our Savior accomplished all of God's saving purposes, and now he's praying for his own. Amen? Let's now go to him in prayer.